Hi, I'm Maureen Milliken. And I'm Rebecca Milliken, and this is Crime and Stuff. The podcast. You would do if you had nothing better to do. And today's Thanksgiving. Yes, I'm very thankful for many things. I'm, I'm thankful that I'm full of good Ugh, food. And I'm we just full. we just spent, just like rookies, here we are. Becky, this is the seventh anniversary. I know. Starting our podcast. We did I know. it. Thanksgiving 2016 was the first time we recorded. And just like a couple of rookies, and it was all my fault, I admit, because I got a new laptop. We just Mm. spent an hour and 15 minutes getting our, getting my shit together. Right. My settings right and everything. Mm. But hopefully this will sound okay. And we've come a long way in seven years. I can't believe it's been. I remember when we started too, it was right after the election. And luckily that part of history is hopefully well in our, the past. Hopefully our long not, national nightmare is over. Time just marches on. Time marches on and there'll be a new national nightmare at some point. Yeah, a lot, a lot of water under the bridge in seven years, but we're still going strong. Yeah. We, and we've still got faithful listeners who are... Thank you, all our listeners. Thanks for being there. Since we just wasted, or I... Well, I guess it really wasn't wasted because it came to the result of us being able It's to- never wasted when you learn something. <laughs> what did, what did we, <laughs> I, I don't know. What did we learn? We I learned I'm an idiot. No. Um, no, we already knew that. Yeah. <laughs> I do have an update, so should okay. I get should I get to that right yes. now? This information comes courtesy of the Vermont Digger, a Ooh. news source that has done a good job of digging up the details. Nice. Thank yeah. you, diggers. They're the only ones that really had stuff. And then I noticed other sources that had stories said this was originally in the Vermont Digger. I haven't seen Ooh. this in the Boston Globe where it should have been or anywhere huh. else. So I have an update on Gregory Fitzgerald, who was convicted of killing his wife, Amy, in 1993. Mm-hmm. In Shelburne, Vermont. We covered the case in episode 117, Amy Fitzgerald, another eraser killer victim. Mm. In episode 118, Amy Fitzgerald, part two, justice erased. Amy Mm. Fitzgerald, 30, had been pursuing a master's degree at the University of Vermont as part of her successful military career. She was a captain in the U.S. Army. She was found strangled to death in her Shelburne, Vermont condo in May 1993. Gregory Fitzgerald, her husband, who was in Texas, attending college. Oh, you can't (laughs) see. I just used air quotes for that. Drove from Texas, where he was supposedly finishing up a degree of his own, to kill her. Actually, he'd been dismissed from the University of Texas and had a secret girlfriend, among many other duplicitous and assholish things. One of the things he did, for instance, was he claimed Amy's Jeep, which he was using, had been stolen, and he collected the insurance on it, and then police found it in a storage area belonging to him, and Amy was going to be finding out about that right before she was killed. Whoops. And you can listen to those episodes to find out more. Well, Amy's family have said that they believe Greg killed her for her $100,000 life insurance policy. There's way more to it than that. In our two episodes, we discuss eraser killers, as described by Marilee Strong in her book, Erased. And I won't go into it all here. But in any case, Greg was tried and convicted on first-degree murder charges in 1994 and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He's been serving his sentence in the Northern State Correctional Facility in Newport, Vermont, ever since. 
life without possibility of parole. End of story. Uh, Not quite. Greg, as you may have guessed, is a guy with a lot of tricks up his sleeve. One of them was he filed a suit against the state of Vermont, saying his defense attorney had failed to tell him about a plea agreement offer and also didn't tell him that if he was convicted, he'd get life without parole. We described the total bullshit nature of that crap in that lawsuit, I think, in episode 118. Anyway, no one likes a lawsuit, even if the guy is just jerking them around. They're time-consuming and can be expensive and drag on. Greg Fitzgerald had nothing better to do than pursue it. The Chittenden County State Attorney's Office had other stuff going on. And by the way, that's my words, not theirs. They would not be describing it that way, but that's what it is. So last year, Fitzgerald and the Chittenden County SAO reached a deal that he'd withdraw the suit and admit he killed Amy, something he'd always denied doing, of course, and in return, they'd reduce his sentence to 35 years to life, which would make him eligible for parole. In fact, after the deal, he retroactively qualified for parole in 2019 because of good behavior and pre-sentence jail time. The Vermont Department of Corrections said Fitzgerald met the basic requirements for parole, completing the programs they required and getting transitional housing for offenders lined up. Uh So on September 18th, Fitzgerald, 66, went before the Vermont Parole Board. Speaking against allowing him parole at the hearing was Fitzgerald's parole officer, Isaiah Moore. Moore told the three-member board, this wasn't just a crime of passion. There was a lot of planning and manipulation that went into this crime. What's going to happen when he gets released? And how do you mitigate all the concerns, you know? Mm. Is that even possible? Also asking the board to deny parole was Alan Zeltzerman, Amy Fitzgerald's brother. Mm. Zeltzerman told the board in a statement that was read by someone else, I think. Uh, It wasn't really clear. But Zeltzerman said that the family found out from police that Fitzgerald had been planning to kill Allen, too, as part of what investigators have described as an elaborate scheme to get rid of his wife. Fitzgerald's plan, according to the police who talked to Zeltzerman, was that after Zeltzerman was killed, Fitzgerald would frame him for Amy's murder. Ah. So he was going to kill Allen and then set it up to mm-hmm. look like Allen for whatever reason killed wow. Amy. Wow. Zeltzerman told the board, I shudder to think what would have happened to me. Uh Zeltzerman said his parents never recovered from Amy's death. Uh He said, shortly before she died, my mother, Ellen, reminded me that when she passed away, it would be up to my brother and I to see that Fitzgerald remained in prison. Fitzgerald seemed matter of fact about the whole thing. He told the board, I'm actually quite at peace with myself right now. Oh, fuck yourself. I've come to accept whatever the board decides today. The board asked him what his plans were if he was released, and he said he would work as a handyman at a property management Mm. company co-owned by a formerly incarcerated person, as Vermont Digger put it. He also said he was hoping to complete work on a bachelor's degree. And (laughs) as we pointed out, one of Greg's things was pretending, even to his wife, that he was (laughs) in college when he wasn't, so the board might want to be wary of any education promises. In fact, Amy was getting ready to go from Vermont to Texas for Greg's quote-unquote graduation, (laughs) which wasn't going to happen since he wasn't going to school when he killed her. But anyway, the parole board deliberated for about 20 minutes before the chair, Dean George, said that they denied Fitzgerald's request. George said, We're finding at this time you will be a detriment to the community and potentially harmful to the family of the victim. So now, end of the story, right? 
Denied parole. I hope so. No. No. No, it wasn't. It turns out Uh. incarcerated individuals in Vermont have another way to get out. And it's not escaping. Mm. Although that's probably they could. They could, yeah. yeah. So three ways. They can also (laughs) be released under the Corrections Department's furlough program, Mm. even if the parole board doesn't want them out. Um, Maybe that's why Greg was so easygoing when they denied his parole on September 18th, because less than a month later, on October 10th, in a move he had to know was coming, the State Department of Corrections granted Fitzgerald a furlough. Haley Summer, a State Department of Corrections spokesperson, told Vermont Digger, if an individual reaches their minimum release date, they're eligible for consideration for both parole and furlough. Parole is determined by the parole board, and furlough is determined by the Department of Corrections. Summer said that furlough allows the Corrections Department to consider a person's release if they are deemed low risk. Now, what I don't understand is the parole board deemed him not low risk. Yeah. So I'm not sure how the Corrections Department... And that's the parole board's job. So I know. That's how the t- corrections department comes up with the opposite. And also, what's this fucking furlough? Like, why well, do they even need that? I'll yes. explain further. The inmate also must meet certain standards, like housing being approved, that would allow them to serve the rest of their sentence in the community under corrections department supervision. So furlough means he's still a convict. But okay, he's out he's in just the community. Out. Okay, he's, yes, that so makes he's, sense. He's, he's, he's still, are, yes, he's allowed to leave, but he's still he's still on okay. right. So he can live in the community under approved housing that they approve and other conditions that Summer would not tell Vermont Digger mm. what they were. Fighting privacy restrictions. Um, hello, Maureen uh, says is total bullshit because that's public record. Besides which. He's a convict, and you're letting him out to interact with the right. general population. Yep. Anyway, Somerset Fitzgerald had served as a minimum sentence and recently got approved housing. Summer wouldn't say where Fitzgerald's approved housing was located, but Vermont Digger found that he's listed in the state's online offender locator as being supervised by the Burlington Probation and Parole Office in Burlington, mm-hmm. Vermont. Summer said that the Corrections Department typically goes by the philosophy that if a person reaches their minimum release date and there's no compelling public safety reasons to keep them in our facilities, we would want them to re-enter their communities. Summer said that the department didn't determine, now this is worded weird, so, and I don't know if it's the reporter writing it weird or if this is how Summer said it, but Summer said that the department didn't determine that Fitzgerald posed a large risk to the community. And that seems like a backwards way of saying it to me, and it actually doesn't mean the same thing as they determined that he didn't pose a risk. You'd think they'd say he didn't pose a risk. Not that they didn't determine that he did pose a risk. Yeah. And I know it's splitting hairs, but like I said, it's two different things. If you don't determine he poses a risk, it means he still may pose yes. a risk. Yes. You just didn't determine. If you determine he doesn't pose a risk, it means you've looked into it and this guy doesn't pose a risk. Mm-hmm. So there are two different things, if you get what I mean. I get it. Summer, the corrections department spokesperson, said she could not comment on the parole board's decision and why it denied Fitzgerald parole and why it deemed him a risk to the community. 
And I encourage people, if they haven't already, to listen to episodes 117 and 118 to hear what Gregory Fitzgerald is like, especially if you live in Vermont, and he may be your neighbor or something. Yeah. Let's hope he's mellowed in prison, but 66 is not that old. And as we know from our Albert Flick episode, episode 54, you're never too old. Never too old. Commit a murder, especially if, I mean, and he was... And I'm not going to go into the whole story and everything here because it's a long involved story. He was a classic narcissistic psychopath. Yes. It's not just that he killed her for the insurance. You have to understand coercive control and narcissism and psychopathy and eraser killers. And I recommend that book if you can find it, Erased by Marilee Strong. It was written in 2008, which explains it. We talk about it in those episodes. Their motives are many, and many of these guys, like Greg Fitzgerald, and there's been a whole bunch of guys, too, that have been on true crime docs, fake their lives, convince their spouse. A big one is convincing their spouse they're in school when they're not. Yeah. That's a big one. And then the spouse ends up, the wife, it's all almost always the wife, ends yeah. up getting killed. It's not just the insurance policy, this life of just duplicity and fake you know he had two social security numbers he had Mm. an alias he had a lot of shit going on and amy fitzgerald was an incredibly hard-working military hero it seems like their wives are always like right they're always just these women who work their asses off and are just these straight arrows and i think part of it is you know, these guys look for people they can manipulate, too. Yes. And I think a lot of people, and there are men like this, too, who are just really good straight arrow people who come from good families and have so much trouble conceiving. Yes. That I somebody, guess I was going to say, they just don't. That somebody who's manipulating them, it could be duplicitous. Yes, and, they, and because you know, they're not that way, they can't even right, conceive right. of it. Yeah. It's just like how duplicitous people, and I've certainly worked with people like this, always assume Yes. That everybody's being duplicitous. Yes. Yes. You know, I've they worked assume with people that everyone's who, doing the same shit that they're doing. Right. Or that yeah. or that what you're telling them isn't the truth or has yeah. double meaning yeah. because they would lie, you know. Yes, exactly. But anyway, I'm so excited about hearing your episode tonight because it's you've an old timey one. You've been dropping some little hints. And I have no yes. clue what it is. Now, this is an interesting one because I found out about the story by chance because the Press Herald, which is our Portland paper, they have a lot of inserts, like little newspapery type things. Like there's an African news one and there's hmm. um, a couple other ones. Dad always leaves them there for like months until really? I throw them out. That's weird because usually he wants to put stuff in the recycling <laughs> like within minutes of it entering the house. There's one called the Working Waterfront that comes out monthly. And so it's a little newspapery tabloidy, not tabloid, but a little, you know, like a mini newspaper. Oh, they're so pandery. And there was a story in the June issue, and it had the title, The Tragic End of MDI's Captain Rummel. And then it was subtitled Race, Working Conditions, and Justice in 1905. And it looked kind of interesting. And so I read that article. It didn't have much. The story, which is also printed on the Island Institute's website, was fairly brief. The story itself, the first story I read, was actually a story about Mount Desert Island historian tim garrity uh he had this lecture series for the tobacco chats which is some kind of 
lecture series by the historical no, society it's not the chewbacca chance no it's tobacco like tobacco but chebacco they probably explain on their site what mm. but i didn't go into it but it was hosted by the mdi historical society and there are some youtube links to his one of his lectures i'll put them on the website yes you can put when, it on the website when i and update you, it also i found a journal article about this which i didn't read because I found it after when I was almost done writing this, but it probably has the same information I have, but it, you might want to read it. It was in the North Carolina Historical Review, and the title is Washed Down in Blood, Murder on the Schooner Harry A. Berwyn by Van Newkirk. And we'll put a link to that. And there is a book called Ship of Blood, Mutiny Ooh. and Slaughter Aboard the Harry A. Berwyn and the Quest for Justice by Ooh. Charles Oldham. And that is actually a free audio version on Audible. So I might oh. listen. If I had had time, I would have read it. But then I would have ended up with like a three hour episode because every time I try to do one after reading a book. I've been there. Yeah. So I did my own research on newspapers.com. The main papers I used were the Bath Daily Times, the Lewiston Journal, the Lewiston Evening Journal, the Evening Express, the Bangor Daily News, the Lewiston Daily Sun, the Ellsworth American, and the Republican Journal, which is in Belfast. And then the North Carolina newspapers were the Daily Economist, which was from Elizabeth City, the Wilmington Messenger, the Farmer and Mechanic, which is from Raleigh, the Greensboro Daily News, the Randolph Bulletin, which is actually from Ashboro, the Caucasian, mm. which is in Clinton, the News and Observer from Raleigh, the Wilmington Morning Star, the Fayetteville Weekly Observer, the Charlotte News, and the Concord Daily Tribune. Wow. And it seems like a lot of papers, but... I read a lot of articles and you never know which one will have a, some little tidbit that the other ones might not have, especially back then because there were so many newspapers. Sometimes they reprinted stuff from others, but a lot of them were reported on their own. So sometimes if they both went to a hearing, they report different things. Stuff yeah, like that. good old days. It's hard to believe that even 20 years ago, that's how things were. And they just are not I anymore. Know. They just aren't. And this was 120. So, yeah. And also a big disclaimer, please. I'm going to be reading some quotes from these newspapers. Please keep in mind that I do not agree with the language used, but I do think it's helpful to hear the stories in the language of the time. It gives us a better understanding of the attitudes of the time, but I'm not condoning the way they're talking about people when we're quoting from old stuff like that the quotes illustrate what's going on or what people were thinking that it's important to use the quotes despite the fact that the language might be That's offensive a, it might people. offend you yeah Just, clean it up I no mean, cleaning up stuff like that is not good reporting and gives people the wrong impression and you need to know about the bad things in order to make critical thinking decisions to understand how things also when talking about ships, I've used the feminine pronouns because that's what people do. And I believe mm -hmm. they still do it, but they yes, definitely do it back then. Now my story. If it finally. I know that was a long. <laughs> that was a long introduction. intro. Yeah. And that's it. Bye. Okay. Um, the Blanche King was a four-mastered schooner built here in Maine. She sailed from 1887 until she sunk in 1920 off the coast of Bermuda. And today she lies at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean, a popular site for scuba divers. But my story isn't about the Blanche King, although she plays an important role. Okay. I didn't put it in there for nothing, you'll see. Okay. 
On Tuesday, October 10th, 1905, the Blanche King was sailing off the coast of Cape Fear, North Carolina, on her way from Brunswick, Georgia, to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. John Taylor was the captain of the Blanche King. At about 8 p.m., Captain Taylor noticed another four-masted schooner looking a bit worse for wear hobbling along outside the shipping lanes. There was a red light hanging from the mast, a distress signal. John realized it was the Harry A. Berwind, and he knew the captain, Edwin Rummel. In fact, Edwin Rummel was his friend. Incidentally, Thomas Gibbs of Bath, Maine, was the first mate on the Blanche King. Mm. The Blanche King came alongside the Harry A. Berwind to see what was going on. Someone from the disabled ship supposedly called out, For God's sake! Come to our assistance. We've got a man here who has killed the captain, the mate, the engineer, and a steward, and just now a sailor. Now, I read this in my research as a direct quote, but I sincerely doubt that these were the actual words that were shouted to the crew (laughs) of the Blanche King. And there's another equally improbable quote later about the same moment, but, you know, you get the idea what was happening. When the crew members of the King boarded the other ship, they encountered four sailors. One was dead on the deck and another was tied up. All the men who were left on the Berwyn were black. The ship's officers and cook, who were white, were not there. The crew from the King immediately assumed this was a race-related mutiny and took the three living men into custody, put them in irons, and brought them back to Southport, North Carolina, to face their fate. The Harry A. Berwyn was built in Millbridge, Maine, 10 years before the incident, and was registered in Philadelphia. Captain Rummel had been in command of the ship from the beginning. The paper said he'd never had any serious issues with crew members prior to this incident. Mm -hmm. Captain Rummel was born in Maine and lived in Pretty Marsh, Mount Desert Island. Nowadays, Pretty Marsh is part of Acadia National Park, but back then it was a settlement. The Rummel family seemed to be a large extended family, including a lot of mariners, but I also found several teachers in the family because when I was doing newspaper research, I looked up their last name. They lived all over Mount Desert Island, but it seems a lot of them were from Tremont or around Seal Cove. You got to look at a map. Mount Desert Island's beautiful, by the way. Mm -hmm. Edwin was 45 at the time of the incident, although most of the newspapers reported his age as 40. He'd been married about 20 years to Letty, and they had two children, George, age 10 or 12, and Edna, age 7 or 8, depending on the source. His family apparently found out about his death from an Associated Press reporter, and all the newspapers said the family members and townspeople were prostrated with grief. That's a phrase you don't hear much anymore. They were all prostrated. The townspeople were prostrated. To say Captain Rummel lived in Pretty Marsh is kind of a stretch. Edwin had been at sea for about 30 years and maybe spent a total of 10 weeks out of those years at home. Hmm. He was born in Seal Cove in 1861, the third son of a sea captain. He first went to sea at age 15 and became a master at 20. He captained a succession of ships, starting with two masts, moving on to the three masts, and finally four masters, meaning Mm -hmm. the ships got larger as his career progressed. The Berwyn was 200 feet long and had four masts, as I said, and he was the only captain from the time it was christened, I don't know what they say, until his death. However, the Berwyn did go on to sail for years after he died. His life was living on the sea. He come home for a few days at a time and, and then he'd leave again impregnate his wife and uh, then gotta get her pregnant yeah. we're yeah. assuming 
Uh, he'd sailed around the world three times and had broken speed records. And yeah, he had a family, but clearly he preferred the life of a sea captain. According to the remaining men on the Berwyn, Edwin Rummel and the other white crew members, John T. Hall, John Falby, and C.F. Smith, had been thrown overboard after being shot or bludgeoned. They may or may not have been dead when thrown overboard. I was not able to find out if their bodies were ever recovered, which is annoying because there were plenty of newspapers back then. I looked. Maybe I should read the book and maybe that'll tell me. Mm. But It's likely they weren't. They probably weren't, but it's like, what the fuck? I want to know. I also didn't find out much about the other members of the crew except for their names. To be fair, I was focused on Edwin because he's from Maine. I'm assuming the other white crew members had stuff written about them in their hometowns, but I didn't know where they were from. There was hardly anything written about them. Hmm. And I can only do so much research. Okay. If you want more details, you can read the books, which we'll have our links to. According to the newspaper reports at the time, the Harry A. Berwyn left Mobile, Alabama on September 23rd, bound for the port of Philadelphia with a load of lumber. One report said railroad ties. When the Blanche King spotted her, she was 30 miles off the Cape Fear Bar, which is the sandbar that comes down from Cape Fear. As the Bath Daily Times described it, Captain Taylor's, quote, attention was attracted by the reckless manner in which the ill-fated vessel was being steered, her Hmm. course threatening to run down his own vessel. There are several accounts of what happened after that, but most of the first accounts told this story. The Berwyn was 30 miles east of the frying pan lightship when they saw the signal. The frying pan shoals are about 39 miles southeast of Southport, North Carolina, where they eventually took the men. The lightship guarded the shoals, and years later, an actual light tower was built. But for a long time, it was the frying pan lightship. I believe the newspapers were using the Cape Fear Bar and the frying pan shoals to mean the same area. When you look at a map, they're both stretching down, kind of like mostly south, a little southeast, down into the ocean. According to reports, when the king hailed the Berwyn, the answering cry from the latter was, One man aboard here has killed the captain, mate, engineer, steward, and one colored seaman, and we want to abandon the ship. I still don't believe that that's what they said either, but, you know, you can get an idea of what they meant. Captain Taylor sent his mate and an engineer and a couple other of the crew on board the Berwyn. Some reports say the captain went himself, but I doubt it. Initial newspaper accounts say that the decks were splattered with blood and there was blood on some of the berths, indicating people were killed as they slept. Many of the newspapers had the phrase crimson with blood and they put it in their headlines you know Mm. decks crimson with blood and a lot of the newspapers had the following information which i found confusing and as we go on you probably think it's confusing too but they all had this in their stories i'll read an excerpt from the bath daily times which is almost word for word and other Maine and North Carolina newspapers. After the boarding party from the King handcuffed the mutineers on the ship, one of the Negroes complained the irons were too tight and hurt him. The bracelet on the Negro's arm was loosened when the captive whipped out a pistol and shot one of his own crew. The total list killed is four whites and one Negro. The reason I find this confusing is they first reported that when the crew from the other ship boarded the Berwyn, the other sailor was already dead. But apparently... According to this newspaper, he wasn't dead yet. I think what happened was one of the sailors that was still alive told somebody that's what happened. When they got on the boat, the guy was dead. I think he said he just shot him. 
The newspaper said the mutiny started because of an argument at breakfast having to do with bad coffee. Mm. But there were no details given about this argument and what was wrong with the coffee. So I was very frustrated about that. Mm. However, I did read some background information about black sailors around this time in history. And even in the previous, in the 1800s, sailing was a popular job for black men. There were some crews that were more black than white. Even so, the black crew members were segregated from the white crew members and the conditions were atrocious. Food and fresh water were scarce. The crew members were punished severely for infractions, beaten and flogged. Some thought serving on a ship was barely a step above being in prison and maybe marginally better than enslavement. The paper said that Captain Taylor left a prize crew on the Berwind, which I had to look up what that meant because I, I don't know anything about nautical stuff. A prize crew consists of crew members from another ship that have taken over operations from a captured vessel. The ship is taken to a prize court where the crew is awarded money. And eventually the crew from the the Blanche King and the ship's owner got a settlement of $7,750, which is about $250,000 today. And that took a while. It was like a year later or more. It might've been more. This confused me at first. And there are later reports about money that left me confused. But then I realized that this was a essentially a capture of a hostile ship because there had been a mutiny. The captain was no longer there and the ship had been taken over. So the Blanche King was capturing the Harry A. Berwin. I didn't really understand the money thing. The ship was still okay. It was damaged, but it's not like they, they bought the ship or they got the ship. So maybe the time in trouble because it was towed back to Philadelphia and they had to have a crew on it or something. I don't know. That's just kind of a tangential thing anyway has nothing to do with the crime many of the newspaper reports use the words butchery to describe the killings of the crew members but none really had answers as to how the men were actually killed obviously one of the crew had a gun but there were indications that other methods were used as well but i think a lot of it at the beginning was speculation when the blanche king arrived in southport with the three men they were put into a quarantine station This was often the practice with prisoners from the South because different illnesses they might carry, especially yellow fever. Apparently, Mobile was an area of high risk for that illness, so anyone coming on shore from there was quarantined. But they weren't kept in quarantine long. It was determined that they had been at sea long enough that they were probably safe to be in contact with other people. The crew members of the Blanche King testified to a preliminary investigation hearing about what happened when they came upon the Berwind. They got on the boat. There was that one guy tied up. The other guy was dead. And then these other two guys were like, ugh. Then the three prisoners were introduced. They were Robert Sawyer, Henry Scott, and Arthur Adams. The reports only said that they were all under 40 years of age. Mm. Robert Sawyer and Arthur Adams both retained lawyers. Their story was that Henry Scott killed everyone who died. The only person they didn't accuse Henry of killing was Captain Rummel because they weren't sure. They only knew that the captain had disappeared in the early hours of Tuesday morning. Both Robert and Arthur said they saw Henry shoot the mate on the deck and throw him into the ocean. Then they saw him kill the engineer and toss his body over the rail. After that, he went downstairs below deck and they heard shots coming from the galley. Shortly after the shots, they saw Henry come back up the stairs carrying the cook who was dead. The cook was a white man who was always described as small in the newspapers. Henry threw his body overboard as well. Robert and Arthur were able to overpower Henry and tie him up. Then they tried to steer the ship the best they could. This is what was going on when the Blanche King saw them, according to their story. But Henry Scott had a different story. 
Henry told the commission that the four black crewmen had formed a conspiracy to kill the white crew members. They started plotting shortly after they set off from Mobile, Alabama. They were pissed off about the crappy rations and the poor treatment. Henry said he killed the other black crewmate, only called Coakley, in reports in self-defense. Henry said that while he was tied up on the deck, Coakley hit him with a stick and shot at him. Henry didn't explain why Robert and Arthur had tied him up except to say that they wanted to get rid of him. Henry said that Coakley shot the mate and Arthur killed the engineer. He professed ignorance as to how the cook was killed. He didn't say anything about the captain either, according to the first reports I read. The three crew members of the Berwyn were held in custody in Southport. The crew members of the Blanche King were also held as witnesses. When the Harry A. Berwyn was towed into port, she wasn't in good shape. Her foremast and topsail were gone. Her rudder was broken and she was leaking. Some reports, like the one in the Daily Economist from Elizabeth City, North Carolina, said the mate's berth was splattered in blood, which indicated it had been killed in bed while sleeping, and the mate, quote, begged piteously for his life, but in vain. But the report of Robert and Arthur's testimony said they saw Henry shoot the mate on the deck. It's really hard to know what the truth is, but I'm going to tell the story and repeat what I've read, and we can come to our own conclusions. I think we do need to take some of the reporting with a grain of salt. We've discussed this before in some of these older newspapers. Sometimes they just sensationalize or they speculate about things. As the days passed, more information came out about the incident. At their preliminary hearing, Arthur and Robert said they were on watch until 4 a.m. the morning of October 10th. They were relieved of their duties presumably by Henry Scott and what's-his-name Coakley, and went below deck to their berths and fell asleep quickly. About an hour later, they were awakened by the sound of gunshots. This story changes too, but when we get to the end, we'll have a pretty good idea of what happened. Shortly after that, Henry Scott came to the doorway of their quarters and told them not to come up on deck unless they wanted to get killed. But they also said they saw him kill the mate on deck, and also if they heard shots, who was he killing? So that's what I was confused about. And as I said before, they saw him throw the engineer and cook overboard. According to Robert and Arthur, Coakley helped them grab Henry and tie him up near the steering wheel. They had taken Henry's pistol away, thinking it was the only one he had. They left him tied up with Coakley's steering while they did some of the other ship sailing related stuff. While they were off doing that, they heard the gun go off again. Henry had shot Coakley. They got Henry tied up again just about the time the crew from the Blanche King spotted the Berwyn. Henry Scott said that they, the black members of the crew, were all just as guilty as one another. Hmm. But the witnesses from the Blanche King seemed to think that Henry Scott was the guilty one. They believe Robert Sawyer and Arthur Adams. There were five sailors from the Blanche King who were held as witnesses and brought to Wilmington. The three prisoners were brought to jail in Wilmington, too. The Wilmington Register wrote, the Negroes are regarded as desperate characters, and every precaution will be taken to prevent their escape. The three crew members' trial was set for October 30th, so quite quick after the incident, because October 10th. If they were found guilty, they would be sentenced to hang. Prior to execution, they'd be sent to the federal prison in Atlanta, Georgia. Here's a quote from the Washington Messenger. There will no doubt be quite a number of people at the boat this morning when the prisoners arrive. They will be eager to see the human beings who prove themselves to be 
the equal of the most bloodthirsty savages. Howard O. Curtis wrote an article that was first printed in the News and Observer out of Raleigh, North Carolina on October 15, 1905, and a couple days later in the Farmer and Mechanic from the same city. I want to read the first sentence because it is super long. Mm. And just a reiteration of my disclaimer, I'm, I'm quoting people. These are not my own words. He has the most detailed account of their hearing, preliminary hearing, but you'll see from the quote, some of it is kind of dubious, but still it's interesting. Okay. But this is his first, the first sentence of this article. The stirring and bloodthirsty period of a hundred years ago, when piracy reigned supreme on the North Carolina coast, was vividly brought out in the most startling and blood-curdling manner in comparing the recent mutiny and murder of the captain, mate, engineer, steward, and one colored seaman on board the Harry A. Berwin, which was towed into port at Southport Thursday morning with the last victim of the three mutineers lying dead where he was shot on the cabin of the Berwin with the three Negro mutineers and supposed murderers lying in chains aboard the four-masted schooner Blanche H. King in charge of Captain J. Taylor, who first stopped the distress signal went aboard the Berwyn, capturing the three mutineers in the schooner as a prize ship. That's the end. That- he has like 15 different things on that sentence. I know. It was very confusing. Howard's article fills in a lot of detail, although, like I said, some of them are kind of suspect. He has a lot of quotes, and he does say the quotes are not exact, but you'll see what I mean. Arthur Adams and Robert Sawyer, the two that were not tied up, their stories were pretty much the same. In the reports, Arthur Adams is called a mulatto, which we would describe today as mixed race or mixed ethnicity. I have photos they're mugshot photos, and we'll post them on our, our site. He looks, to me, he looks white. If you saw him, you'd think he was maybe an Italian or something. I think that might have helped him. Arthur was from the island of St. Vincent and therefore was a British subject. Mm-hmm. But St. Vincent is now known as St. Vincent and the Grenadines, and it has been independent since 1979. During his testimony at the preliminary hearing, Arthur reportedly covered his face with his hands and cried, Oh, how did I ever get into trouble of this kind? And you brute, Scott, you know you killed them all. And I, an innocent man, shall have to suffer for it. The reason why Henry Scott would have gone on such a rampage was never articulated besides the testimony that the food and water was subpar. I think we understand now that there may not have to be a concrete reason or cause for someone to commit mass murder, but we'll talk more about that later. Right. I'm going to read a long passage from Howard O. Curtis's article. As Howard said, it is the substance of Arthur Adams' story, although not his exact words. Howard said that Robert Sawyer's account was almost identical. I sometimes feel lazy reading a long passage, but when they tell the story better than my summary, and like I said, it gives a flavor of the whole. So now I am Howard O. Curtis. And Howard O. Curtis is quoting, this is the voice of Arthur Adams. Myself and Sawyer were in the captain's watch, and my watch being out at four o'clock in the morning, I went to my bunk to turn in. As I passed the engine room of the schooner, I saw the captain firing up the boiler as the vessel was leaking badly and the pumps had to be kept going night and day. I suppose the captain was relieving the engineer, though I don't know for certain. This was the last time I saw the captain, but I heard several shots just after getting into my bunk. At five o'clock in the morning or near five, we turned out to get coffee. And as I and Sawyer got up and went to the forecastle door, we met Scott, who had a belt around his waist with a pistol in it. 
Scott said to us, damn it, you fellas stay where you are and do what I tell you to do and everything will be all right. If you don't do as I tell you, I will kill you for I am in command of this damn ship. We then stayed at the forecastle, which is another word for the ship's quarters. And pretty soon we heard some more shots. We went on top of the forecastle and pretty soon I said to Sawyer, my God, look at the chief who was the engineer all washed down in blood. He was standing against the rigging and I could see that he was in an agony of pain as he was twisting about. Pretty soon we saw Scott come up to the chief with a pistol. We could see the chief was pleading with Scott to spare him and not throw him overboard. The next thing I saw was Scott going over to the lee side of the vessel, carrying the chief in his arms. Then I heard someone calling, calling in the sea far astern. And I suppose it was the chief whom Scott had thrown overboard. I hadn't seen the mate at all, but pretty soon we heard other shots and looking aft, we saw Scott and the mate scuffling. We saw that Scott was trying to make the mate go overboard, but the mate wouldn't go. We saw them fighting together. And one time Scott nearly had the mate over the rail, but somehow the mate got away and slid down under the deck load. Pretty soon they were fighting again, and we thought that maybe Scott didn't have any more bullets in his pistol, and Sawyer said to me, I am going aft to help the mate, and he started calling Scott, Scott. Scott looked at him and said, damn you, if you come here, I will shoot you, and shot at Sawyer, but missed him. We heard the mate calling to Sawyer, for God's sake, help me, Sawyer, and then we saw Scott raise his pistol. The mate had his hands up, begging Scott not to shoot him. Scott fired twice, and the mate fell. Scott threw him overboard. Scott came back forward to us and told us to clue up the mate and topsail. We did this. A little while after this, I saw Scott go down to the galley. I heard two shots fired, then four more. Then I didn't see Scott come out of the galley for some time. When he did, I saw that he had the steward in his arms. The steward was a very small white man. I watched Scott go over to the rail and throw the steward's body into the ocean. All this time, the other colored man, Coakley, the last man shot by Scott, was at the wheel. We told him that unless we could creep up on Scott and throw him down, he would kill us. Coakley said he thought so, too. Mm. I went forward, and late in the evening, I heard somebody call, Adams, Adams, and running aft, I saw that Sawyer had thrown Scott down and was on top of him. We got some rope and tied his hands together and chained his feet together and put him on some canvas on the deck. We took a pistol from him and searched him. Coakley was staring and I went into the rigging as I thought I saw light on a steamer. In a little while, I heard a shot and going down out of the rigging, I heard Coakley holler, my God, he shot me, he shot me. And I found him lying across Scott and Scott had a pistol in his hands. We took this away from him and bound him up tighter. We then got a red signal light and commenced to signal the steamer as it was then dark, but she didn't notice us. Then I saw another light and commenced to signal again. The schooner Blanche H. King then came up to us and I hollered to them to take us off. That's the end of the quote. According to Arthur Adams and Robert Sawyer, Henry Scott killed five people and forced the two survivors to do his bidding at gunpoint until they were able to overpower him. Henry Scott gave his testimony too, although Howard O. Curtis didn't report it in detail like he did with Arthur's. Henry's story implicated all the Black crew members. Henry said all of them planned the mutiny. Previously, he'd said he had nothing to do with it and he only killed Coakley because Coakley had attacked him. But by the time he testified, his story had changed. 
He said the last time he saw Captain Rummel, he was in the engine room. He didn't know what happened to him after that. Henry said that Arthur and Robert killed the mate, the engineer, and the steward. And then, as I said, he did admit to killing Coakley, but only in self-defense. During Henry's testimony, according to Howard Curtis, Adams and Sawyer laughed frequently, scornfully, and derisively, as if they were amused at the assurance in which Scott testified as to the facts as he saw them. Contrary to the initial news reports that the deck was crimson with blood, Curtis reported there was no blood found on the ship except on the deck where Coakley was shot. There was no sign of a fight or any other kind of altercation. The galley floor had been scrubbed clean, though, and Robert had testified he saw Henry come up the steps with a stone jar and a bucket. He threw the jar in the water, which I'm assuming the jar had some kind of cleaning solution in it, and dumped the bucket, which had red liquid in it that Robert took to be bloody water. There was some disarray in the captain's cabin, papers scattered, but no signs of anything being taken or destroyed. Of all the reports I read, those from 1905 and the present day ones, Howard Curtis is one of two who told the names of all the victims, which I said in the beginning, but I'll say again, Captain Edwin Rummel, of course, but also the mate, John T. Hall, and John Falby and C.F. Smith, not sure which was the cook and which was the engineer. The Berwyn had set out from Philadelphia on July 1st, 1905, with a load of coal. Her next stop was Cardenas, Cuba, to drop that off, and then she went on to Mobile, where she got the load of lumber. I think that they picked up those crew members in Mobile. The Greensboro Daily News from North Carolina reported that there was some concern that the three suspects would be lynched if a crowd caught them. But since the public knew that the three were probably going to hang anyway, the concern about lynching wasn't that great. Lots of looky-loos went down to Southport to look at the ship, which had been towed there for repairs. Newspapers reported that Henry Scott had confessed to the killing of John Coakley and being part of the mutiny. Because he had admitted to the crimes, he knew he would hang. But he said he wasn't afraid of hanging because he didn't believe in the Bible. Although it isn't reported this way, and I'm not sure how the judicial system worked back then, I don't know if he actually pled guilty because he did have a trial that was going to commence after the other two men's. But it also seemed like that people just assumed he was going to hang. They didn't say that about right. the other two men with him. And maybe it's because he publicly admitted it. I don't know. So Arthur and Robert did not admit to killing anybody. They went on trial on November 4th, 1905, which strangely was a Saturday. But I don't think weekends were as much of a thing. The defense was George L. Peshaw. And the assistant district attorney prosecuting was J.A. Giles. Before he got a band together. (laughs) The day the trial was to start, the Wilmington Messenger reported that Arthur Adams had written a letter to his uncle in Philadelphia, which told the same story he told at his hearing. The paper said the letter seemed sincere and gave doubt to Arthur's guilt. Arthur explained that Henry held Robert and Arthur at gunpoint, and any time they tried to stop him from killing someone, he threatened to shoot them. The same article reported that the mate, cook, and engineer were all asleep when they were shot, but that contradicts the testimony as recounted by Howard O. Curtis, although it would make more sense if one man had killed them all that they were asleep. It was apparently a stormy morning on the sea, so pistol shots may not have been heard by the others on the boat. Although they mentioned that they heard gunshots. So it's like, but maybe they met the other victims. That's why the other victims weren't warned. If the killer came in and shot people who are asleep, I guess that, you know, like I said, they wouldn't be warned. Right. And um, maybe ha- the, maybe sound just traveled differently when you're at sea. There's the well, wind. Well, there's a lot of things cracking and stuff. Like there's yeah. a wooden 
Oh, Henry was the first witness to testify, and his story was what he'd told previously. All the Black members decided to mutiny, and he helped, but he only killed Coakley. Hmm. Both Robert and Arthur testified, telling their story of how Henry killed everyone himself. The News and Observer of Raleigh said witnesses were introduced by the government to show discrepancies in their statement at the preliminary trial and in the higher court. But that testimony was shaken little by the long and tedious cross-examination by the district attorney. There was surprise evidence, which was objected to by the defense, of the captain's logbook. There was an entry about the captain flogging Robert for insubordination and insolence. This would show that Robert had a reason to be pissed off and maybe kill the captain. Here's a quote from the News and Observer, which gives an idea of the attitudes at the time. The Negroes are all much above the average intelligence of their race. But Scott is the smartest of the three and tells an equally plausible tale. The logbook contains very grave charges against Sawyer, who is a black West Indian Negro, a subject of Great Britain. Adams is a yellow Negro and claims St. Vincent Island, another British possession, as his home, end quote. Arthur and Robert were found guilty and convicted of mutiny and murder. They weren't sentenced right away. They were going to testify at Henry Scott's trial, so their sentencing would be delayed until after his trial was finished. Although that seems weird because they were convicted, and that kind of makes puts a lie to their story of Henry doing everything. Right. But what do I know? Arthur and Robert's lawyer said he was passing their representation on to George Roundtree, who had filed a motion for a new trial. The next day, or there might have been a day between, was Henry Scott's trial. Henry Scott's lawyer was William Bellamy. It was hard finding an impartial jury since most of the men called were convinced of Henry's guilt. Most of the jury were from Wilmington, but the Wilmington Morning Star noted one of the jury members was Syrian. His name was Mm. Isaac Bufara. He was from Wilmington. They listed the names of the jury which seems kind of weird nowadays, but it was done back then. I don't know when they started. Well, the episode I did a couple episodes ago about Fred Spencer, the papers in the 60s and 70s of Maine listed who was on the jury. Yeah, I wonder when they started doing it. And now it's funny, you can't even show them in pictures or anything. Captain Stetson, who is representing the owners of the Berwyn, testified that Henry Scott had confessed to him while in jail in Southport that there was a mutiny plot and that he, Henry, had killed Coakley in self-defense. Later, while in jail in Southport, Henry told Captain Stetson that he had killed the steward as well. Captain Stetson said this admission was voluntary, but under cross-examination, the captain admitted that he had confronted Henry and kind of browbeat him into saying Yeah, I bet. Captain Taylor of the Blanche King testified that he went back on the Berwyn after it was back in port to find 60 cents that Henry asked to get for him. He said it was in his bunk. While looking for the money, Captain Taylor found a dozen thirty-two caliber cartridges and a blackjack. A blackjack is some kind of a weapon. It's a piece of leather, something wrapped in leather. Like I said, this was after the ship had been brought to port. The first mate corroborated that story. He was with Captain Taylor. The defense attorney pointed out that Arthur had told them which bunk was Henry's. The argument was that Arthur could have either misdirected them to the wrong bunk Mm -hmm. or he could have planted the items in Henry's bunk to make him look guilty. A deputy marshal who collected the prisoner's stuff from the quarters testified that he found a 
heavy iron coupling from the Pennsylvania and Reading Railroad in Henry's bunk. Dr. J. Arthur Dosher of Southport testified about the autopsy he performed on Coakley. Coakley had blunt force trauma to his head and a bullet wound in his chest, likely from a 32 caliber weapon. Arthur testified telling the same story about Henry doing it all, and Henry Scott was found guilty. A couple days later, all three men were sentenced to hang. All three were to be hanged on January 26, 1906. Shortly after the sentencing, the Raleigh Times had an editorial that read, The Three Mutineers, the sentence of the court should stand. It is to be hoped that the sentence passed by Judge Purnell on the Negro murderers at Wilmington will stand, and it will if justice is done. The murder of the captain and members of the crew of the schooner Harry A. Berwin was the most outrageous crime that ever came before North Carolina court. One, One Negro may not have been as guilty as the others, yet all of them were involved in the conspiracy, even if one did not actually take another man's life. Lawyers and friends may appeal to a higher tribunal or the president of the United States, but that should not prevent the execution of the murderers, nor should it result in giving them a longer lease on life. Okay, so if they appeal, they should still be hanged? That doesn't Uh, uh, make sense. At the end of December 1905, it was reported that the United States Supreme Court was going to hear the appeal of Arthur Adams and Robert Sawyer. The reason for the appeal wasn't clear. It just said the attorney, George Roundtree and George Peschow, had filed a writ of error. So there was something in the trial. They didn't specify what. But it must have been fairly big or the Supreme Court wouldn't have heard bothered. To, right. It was the U.S. Supreme Court. Was it the right. Supreme? Usually the Supreme Court takes cases that would set an overall precedent. Yes. For- the Supreme Court will be hearing the case on January 15th, 1906. Because it takes them a while, the Supreme Court a while to rule, that meant that the guys were not going to hang in January, right. on January 26th. If they ordered a new trial, that meant not only Arthur and Robert's execution would be delayed, but also Henry's because he was the star witness at their trial. Henry's attorney did not file an appeal and Henry seemed resigned to his fate. The Supreme Court's decision would not come until at least late spring, so the three defendants waited in jail in Wilmington, North Carolina. The newspaper seemed pretty confident that the Supreme Court would rule in favor of the lower court conviction, and the three men would be put to death in July. And they were right. In May, the Supreme Court held the convictions of all three men. Because of bureaucratic paperwork, they wouldn't face their fates until summer. And also, it seemed like from what I read in the newspaper, they had to be resentenced. I don't know why, but... You know, it would have been really good if one of those papers had reported what the appeal to the Supreme Court was, because it obviously was something big. July 6th was the day set for Henry Scott to hang. His former crewmates were supposed to hang on August 17th. As he stood on the scaffold, literally moments before his death, Henry Scott read a statement. And here is an excerpt from the Charlotte News. Standing on the scaffold this afternoon, Henry Scott, the Negro seaman whose home was in Philadelphia, had read his sworn statement confessing that he alone committed the wholesale butchery of human life last October aboard the schooner Harry A. Berwin, 
bound for Philadelphia and off the North Carolina coast at the time. He confessed that he slew Captain E.R. Rummel and the three other white officers and threw their bodies overboard, and that he also slew the Negro seaman Copley, whose body was left on the deck of the ship, and that he only implicated Arthur Adams and Robert Sawyer, his fellow seamen, now under sentence of death for the same crime, to repay them for betraying him. Hmm. His statement unfolded a remarkable capacity for dealing death to human beings and he claimed that he was led to do the deeds of blood because the cook aboard the ship attacked him and because of the harsh treatment accorded him and the crew by captain rummel and the other officers shortly after the reading of the statement scott was hanged and that's the end of the quote arthur and robert's defense lawyers and other supporters immediately started efforts to get them pardoned appealing to president theodore roosevelt among others in december President Roosevelt commuted their sentences to life in prison instead of death, which I think was the friggin' wimpy thing to do. Yeah. Robert and Arthur were moved to a federal prison in Atlanta, Georgia. Although supposedly their appeals were used up, they still had hope that they'd eventually have their convictions overturned or at the very least get a new trial. In 1910, Arthur Adams and Robert Sawyer gained a champion in actor H.B. Warner. He was a British stage actor at the time, but later became popular in silent movies playing Jesus in the film King of Kings. Most of us would know him for a role he played later in life, the drunk pharmacist in It's a Wonderful Life who slaps George Bailey across the face. Oh, nice. Remember Mr. Gower? Mr. Gower. Even in the pre-film days, H.B. Warner, no relation to the Warner Brothers, was popular and a well-known actor. And it kind of bugs me because some of the things I read are like, oh, he was a really popular film actor who played Jesus. And it's like, yeah, but that was after all this happened. H.B. was starring in a play in New York called Alias Jimmy Valentine. The play is based on an O. Henry short story titled A Retrieved Reformation about a safe cracker who reforms when he falls in love. There have been a few film adaptations called Alias Jimmy Valentine, but none of them had H.B. Warner, even though there was one from 1915. The New York Times had written a story about how H.B. Warner was performing a special matinee of the play for the families of lifers in Sing Sing Prison. Arthur and or Robert read the story and wrote to H.B. to tell him about their plight. According to newspaper reports, neither man could read or write prior to entering prison, but learned while they were in jail. Well, see, good. There was a benefit to that. And it claimed their first trial of writing once said the first time they ever wrote was the letter to hp and i'm like i seriously doubt that. Why would they be reading? Why would they have read that article then? Yeah. They probably read everything they could get their hands on because it's, you know, they're boring in person. A petition for their pardon had already been circulating for years. And the signatures on it were not only regular citizens supporting the men, but court officers and jury members. It turned out prior to his statement on the scaffold, Henry Scott had made a full confession to his lawyer, William Bellamy, and his spiritual advisor, the Reverend E.R. Bennett, who they called his colored spiritual advisor. Henry said he had killed everyone and Arthur and Robert were totally innocent. H.B. Warner sent a lawyer down to Atlanta to talk to the two prisoners and see if they were legit. After he was satisfied this was the case, his attorney sent a full record of the case and the findings of his investigation to Justice J.W. Borneman of Wilmington. The Philadelphia Bulletin wrote an article about the case 
And I'm not sure why, but maybe they were writing because the Berwyn was from Philadelphia. Henry Scott was from Philadelphia and Arthur Adams had family in Philadelphia. So they were probably covering it. Also, the um, ship was headed there. And yeah, I said the ship was from case. there. Yeah. And this is what they wrote. After serving more than six years for a murder, which it is now established they did not commit, Arthur Adams and Robert Sawyer colored in the federal prison in Atlanta, Georgia, are to be pardoned. Word to this effect has been conveyed to H.B. Warner, an English actor, through his attorney, Joseph S. Bueller, 140 Nassau Street, New York. Mr. Bueller, retained by Mr. Warner, has been making a long fight to secure the release of the two men who were convicted of complicity in a quadruple murder on the high seas. The two colored men were sailors on the schooner Harry A. Berwyn, a Philadelphia vessel plying between here and Mobile, Alabama. The crew mutinied on October 12th, which it didn't, 1905, and E.R. Rummel, the captain, John Hall, the mate, the engineer of the hoisting apparatus, and the steward who stood by the officers were killed. Adams and Sawyer and Harry Scott, another mistake, another colored sailor, were tried and convicted of that crime and all were sentenced to death. Subsequently, President Roosevelt was convinced that Sawyer and Adams were not the actual murderers and commuted their sentences to life imprisonment. On the scaffold, Scott admitted that he alone had murdered the four men and that Sawyer and Adams were innocent. He said he had tried to implicate them as murderers in an effort to save his own neck, end quote. Joseph Bueller was able to revive the petition for clemency. Among the signers, and I'm not sure who had signed previously to H.B. Warner's involvement and who signed after, but these were some of the people who signed it. Justice Thomas Purnell, the presiding judge at their trial. The district attorney who prosecuted them signed it. His name was Harry Skinner. Nine of the 12 jurors who convicted them. And William Moyer, the prison warden, and a couple of state senators signed it. Because the two men were British subjects, the British ambassador also appealed to President Taft. President Taft was the president by the time this happened. On January 2nd, on January 2nd, 1912, President William Howard Taft commuted Arthur and Robert's life sentences to time served, and they were released. President Taft said, I do not find Adams and Sawyer free from fault, and I do not think that their conviction, insofar as it has led to the present imprisonment, is an injustice. But I do think that the confession of Scott and the other circumstances are enough to relieve them from active complicity in the murders hmm. and to justify their now being freed. Like his predecessor, Wimpy. Either you yeah. believe their story or you don't. Once people are convicted, they just hate I know, to... especially black guys. Yeah. But at least they were free from prison, even though they were not officially exonerated. H.B. Warner hired Robert Sawyer to be his personal assistant, and the lawyer, Joseph Bueller, hired Arthur Adams for the same type of job, and they lived happily ever after. There's one thing I want to say. If Henry Scott was telling the truth, that means that those guys were innocent of everything. They didn't right. mutiny. They didn't kill anybody. They did nothing. Right. If he was telling the truth, I don't know if he was, but I feel as though if, he was. If they believe, if the president, if President Roosevelt and President Taft believe that, then they should have pardoned them. You can't say, oh, well, they didn't kill anybody, but they did something because they didn't do anything. Right. Except for not get killed. But it could have been, they, they could have had something to do with it. I'm not saying they did. I don't think they did. But then the, I start thinking about, well, why would have, he recant? 
Because maybe he just figured, why should they die? I don't why know. would he I don't know. be that generous after killing people? I don't know. I don't think he would. But I do think that he did do it all. I don't think he really had a reason. I think he was just nuts. Yeah. Um, and didn't like the white guy. He was probably right? and the fed conditions up. probably were shitty. And yes. they probably sat around at night or whenever they had free time griping. You can't blame them. They're black. They were treated like shit. The captain flogged them. And I read something out somewhere, and I don't know why I didn't write it down, but someone said, you know, Captain Rummel, he was a tough, you know, taskmaster, blah, blah, blah. Obviously, they felt it was okay. And I think part of it is because... I mean, look, we're only how many years, 40 years after slavery. It's okay to, to beat up this black guy if he doesn't do what I want. So I thought it was an interesting story. You know, I thought it would make a really cool movie. And they did make, there it was would, a movie, yeah. but it was really not. I just looked at online. It was in the 50s and it was totally, first of all, it didn't take place in 1905. It looked like it took place in the 50s uh, and it looks stupid. And James Mason played Captain Rummel and his <laughs> wife was on the ship who was Dorothy Dandridge. And it was nothing. It looked like it had nothing Sometimes to do with it. Sometimes they did bring their wives and stuff along, yeah, but, he but it doesn't sound like. Like if you made a decent movie of it, you could show the different scenarios one of the things about ships that people don't realize at least back then is when they're out there the captain is the law yeah you know they're not in a state or somewhere where there's uh, law enforcement and laws and stuff they're out there beyond yeah territory and it's his world it's his universe and what he says goes and he can do whatever the hell he wants i thought it was interesting because i had never heard of it no i even though either. it didn't really happen in maine but he's from maine there's a Maine connection both the ships were built in maine the blanche king too what i think is from the scant evidence available adams and sawyer's story makes the most yeah. sense i think people have trouble even nowadays but back then getting their head around a mass murder especially how does one guy kill all those people and how does one black guy kill those white guys you know and that kind of thing and i also think the fact that which is true nowadays too if there are people left alive it's like okay what do these people have to do with i it? think his beef was with the white guys and i don't right. think he wanted to kill the black guys and maybe he thought once he killed the white right. guys the black guys would but he probably the captain was in the engine room they were having issues because it was a storm and it was leaking right. and stuff and he was trying to deal with that so he probably probably shot him he had two guns he shot the captain and somehow dragged him he uh, who knows the captain didn't look like a big guy either from the picture i had and then once he did that maybe he he was like, oh, I hate this guy. I'm going to freaking kill. And then once he did that, he's like, oh, shit. I better get rid of the other ones. Right. Too. I got to get rid of the other white guys, but I don't need to shoot the other black guys because they're not a threat. They're not going to do anything to me. They right. have no power. But then I don't know if he had an idea what the end game was. But a lot of these well, people, most a lot people of these don't. mass murderers don't. Well, a lot of mass killers, the end game is they're just going to kill themselves. Yes. But a lot of people who commit crimes or a murder don't have an end game and that's part of the problem you know they don't think of what's going to happen after it he knew he was gonna i mean he seemed like resigned from the very beginning oh yeah i'm gonna hang for it but but so he maybe wanted he knew. to kill he the guy and i think the fact that if they were white guys who hadn't been killed i think they would not have been in as much trouble i think well, that yeah 
You know, I think the fact it's easy for them, it was easy for everybody to convict the black guys, and then the presidents and everybody were just like, "Mm, yeah, they must have done something. It's so wimpy. I mean, it's like, come on. Like I said, if you believe that Henry Scott was telling the truth, that they didn't have anything to do with I killed everybody, then why are you keeping them in prison? And the, the other thing that bugs me is it's still called a mutiny. And I don't think technically it is a mutiny. No. I think of a mutiny as when the crew rises up against, against the cap. It was mass murder. No, but, but a lot a of that reporting was. But even now, like, if you look it up, it's still called a mutiny. Right. Because even now, nobody's putting as much thought into it as you are. Know. You know, what well, it's say? true. You know, I'm not going to go on yeah. a rant about something totally off topic but all the repetition in the press today nobody's thinking about even what they're writing uh, and nobody's looking at it and saying what am i saying here and how is uh, it accurate and how can i say it differently one thing i would like to know more about it i'm sure there's a resource for this and i sound like an idiot for saying it there must be some resource that has all the cases the supreme court has considered and what the details are yeah like I would why, love why would they know. consider that i <laughs> but i wonder if it has to do with it doesn't make sense for this guy to be the evidence basically all the evidence against these two guys and they're convicted then yeah. these two guys with a different story are all the evidence against this guy and he's I convicted know. too. i know so it's almost like the legal system is saying we don't really care what the details are we don't we don't care if this all makes sense although even now something and people were killed and so even now sometimes that a witness being convicted of something they can keep that out of court but everyone knew because it was in the papers all right but just like the trial i spent last month covering there's all this shit and maybe people know it because it's in the papers but the jury's not supposed to know it but they Mm -hmm. thought lawyers have motion after motion after motion to keep stuff out and the judge rules on whether it should be kept out or not and it's not brought up at the trial and the jury can only convict or acquit on specifically what's brought up at the trial so you have to picture the trials of these guys Scott wasn't convicted yet, but the jury in his case doesn't knew, know they, that he's the guy, or isn't supposed to know, yeah. that he told a story about them, and now they're telling a story about him, and that they conflict, but yeah, everybody's guilty, but it just shows what a joke the legal system can be. It's not about getting to the truth, but it's yeah. about convicting somebody when it's obvious the truth can't be two totally different things then something should be done to make the real truth come out instead of saying well it could be this it could be that they're all guilty let's hang them all well i think it's interesting that all the people that signed that petition for them including the judge and the prosecutor and and it's almost like they thought to themselves well they're black so we can't just let them off right um so we're gonna have to go to trial for them even though we kind of believed them, like the guys on the other ship believed them. At first, they didn't know what was going on, I think, when they first got on the ship. They probably were like, what the hell? So anyways, I thought that was an interesting story. No, that's story. a good story. But I like I, mutiny. Everyone I, likes mutiny stories. I like in murders on ships and people being thrown overboard. Like a good cruise ship murder. Yeah. You know, and stuff. But it's so hard with those old ones to know 
yeah, it's hard to know even with today's stories. I mean, I find the problems with stories now in the news is that I don't think there's been enough questioning, enough digging done, and they just repeat things. Yes. I think back then there was more embellishment or inventing things. And then there's no mention of the fact that, gee, you said this total opposite thing yesterday. Oh, I, I know. That's what's funny. And they just didn't seem to give a shit. In between, like, it seemed like from maybe the, I don't know, 40s up to the, yeah, the 60 years, turn Green, of the century, they were a little bit better. I don't want to blame the internet for everything. But pre-internet, it was much harder to just run the same stories. Like, if you're a newspaper or any news organization, like, you had to be a member of AP to get the AP stories, which you still do now. So a lot of papers would run the AP stories. But there would be, you'd go cover something, and there would be reporters from other papers, like you were saying earlier. And this was not that long ago. And so you would have stories by different reporters that had different stuff and them are focused on different things and the first time i really and i guess i should have noticed it before but the first time doing this podcast i really 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 noticed how bad it was was when i did the story about the the woman in portland oregon you know how to murder your husband yeah woman and that would have been 2018 every single story like i was trying to get more detail and more information Every single story, most of them had the exact same headline. Yes, and the exact same and then the exact same words and stuff. And there were stories with different people's bylines that were word for word the same. And I'm like, this is bullshit. And I know that it, it was happening long before that, but this was the first time I had noticed it to that extent that it was just. Do you have a? Review? Oh my sh- god, shit, yes, our NNW. Here we were. I've been waiting all night for it. Yeah, so I have an NNW. Yay. <laughs> my NNW is a three-part documentary, and our listeners will be happy to know it's something that's more accessible than some of the stuff we do because it's on Netflix. Oh. Which, again, everybody has Netflix. It's called Expose the Ghost Train Fire. It's a three-episode documentary. Me too. It's a three-episode documentary that just dropped on Netflix recently. It's Australian, and I believe it was released in Australia in 2021. It is made by Caro Meldrum Hanna, who I think is some kind of TV journalist or something. She wrote it, and she's in it. They don't totally explain who she is. It's like one of those people that you're kind of supposed to know. And then Our Australian talking. listeners can tell us. They certainly can. Like there's some business name. I can't remember what it is that begins with you that they keep showing. So I don't know if it's a channel or a production company. But anyway, I'm going to try to do this without spoilers. So bear with me because it's new to the U.S. It, you know, it's not like I'm doing one on something that everybody's had a chance to watch yet the documentary is about a fire that burned a ride the ghost train at a sydney australia amusement park luna park in june Mm -hmm. 1979 it's one of those things that you go in on rails and you're in an interior building that's just a space mountain death trap fire trap yeah that sounds like fun it was built in the 1930s so you can imagine seven people six of them kids all boys, Aww. 
Four of them were, I think, around 13. They never specifically say their ages. Two of them were four and six. Died, and the father of the four and six-year-old died. People from the start, this was in June 1979, didn't believe the police narrative. First, that it was an electrical issue that caused the fire, or later a tossed cigarette butt that might have caused it. A lot of people thought it was arson. And that's not a spoiler because they hit you over the head with that continuously, repeatedly, over and over and over again from the beginning. There was one kid of the four boys that were like 13. There was a fifth boy who was their friend. He was a year younger. They were in a grade ahead of him at school. Jason Holden, they didn't explain it well, but it was two people to a car and the cars were separate. So two of his friends went. Two went and he got in the third car. They went in and then it became apparent there was a fire. Ride attendant pulled him out of the car and he ended up becoming a filmmaker. Mm. So the film has a lot of him. He says at the beginning that he tried to make a film, but it became too painful and he needed help. And that's where Caro Meldrum Hannah comes in. Mm. She and her helpful, earnest young male reporter friend, Patrick. And there's another figure in this. An Australian artist, Martin Sharp, who painted the super creepy giant face that you have to walk through to get into the <laughs> And he did some other work. Again, they kind of were just general and all over the place. Okay. I don't know why I said again, because I haven't gotten to that yet. <laughs> so, but he was totally invested in the park, and this was back in the 60s and stuff. It's hard to say how famous he was in Australia. He was a caricaturist, and people seemed to know who he was. After the fire, he became super obsessed with it, and he started this lifelong investigation amassing thousands of taped interviews and police statements and stuff, and he had this room with just shelves of stuff, boxes of cassettes of interviews of people he even interviewed. They're not totally clear. I don't think it's the Prime Minister of Australia. I think it was the premier or whatever they're called of the state where Sydney is, New South Wales. Very ignorant. I've started listening to a podcast about Australian history because I realize how ignorant I am about Australia. The documentary starts out implying that they're going to follow or use Martin Sharp's stuff, and they do kind of, but... But, well, anyway, I'll get into that. I'll I'll just go through the things now. Yes. You know the bad. Okay, bad reenactments. I'm not taking anything away, but they do have unnecessary ones. Like when they're talking about what good mates the four boys were, they show kids looking all 70s riding their bikes and stuff. And the thing is, there are so many visuals for this. You do not need... Some of the reenactments were good. Like, the ones of the fire looked genuine. Ah. One of the really riveting parts of this is you're in this dark, dark thing, and just for a brief minute, your cart comes out into this caged area where you can see the amusement park and people, you're out in the open, but you're caged in, and then you go back in. When you went back in, that's where the fire had started. Ah. And when the thing was burning, there was this big burst of flame that came out of that. And the reenactment of that was good. I felt like I was watching the fire. So Ah. the reenactment of things that happened at the fire, I thought, was good and necessary. But you don't need to show four little boys riding their bikes or getting on the ferry to go to the amusement park and stuff. I'm not taking any points away. You don't need that shit. And another peeve that I'll give this documentary a pass on, but I may start taking an automatic point away, is when they show actual video 
of an era, like something from the 70s, you know, like a family having a picnic, and you don't know if it's a home movie of the yeah, or it's about, not so specific or they're just the showing people. here's it's just a some stock footage, yeah. Right, here's a representative 1970s yeah, like family having a picnic. You need to be transparent. So I may, if the next thing I watch has that shit, it may tip me over the edge and I may just start taking automatic points off anytime somebody has that. Narrative cliches, I'm taking a point off. No. First of all, it uses a structure I hate that always drags down the overall narrative, the reporter investigating the crime no. thing. This, of course, means that Carol and Patrick are revealing stuff to each other that you know they already know. Like, oh, Carol, fake. look at this big screen. I just happened to be projecting this movie onto, and look what's happening here. And she's like, oh, wow. Oh, look at that. Carol dialing a phone, the phone ringing, the person answering. I hate that, Aaron, Her identifying herself, her telling the person stuff. She was just telling us, well, I know blah, 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 blah. So now I'm going to call so-and-so and ask him about it, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> because it's a fucking huge time waster. Each of these episodes yes. are 90 minutes long. And some of it's riveting. And I know documentarians are limited to how much time they can take up. So why are you taking up time? I know. Telling us something, dialing a phone with a little phone I dial noise, have the phone ring, the person answer, and then have her tell him stuff. She was just homeless. Just have the fucking audio of the guy talking. I know. Take out all the other shit. And she has her big wall of photos then writing things on the wall as she and Patrick talk and stuff. And granted, like when I'm writing a book, I'm writing things on a whiteboard and stuff, but it's not. Do you have one of those clear ones like they always have no. in TV? Like on CSI. How do they even read those? I know. As she and Patrick uncover things, they're putting things. Oh, so you need for your investigation, like 50 pictures of <laughs> little boys, different stages of their lives. Also, they do a twist as far as narrative cliches on, you know, how everybody now does showing the person sitting down on the chair, maybe putting yes, their microphone on, the maybe saying, oh, thing. can I drink my water? Yeah, yeah. Well, they do a twist on this where they show the person's back as the person walks to where they're going to sit. Oh, yeah. Now, there's one woman who was a family member of one of the boys who was killed who didn't want her face shown, and that's fine. But nobody else had that issue, but almost every person, they showed their back and them walking with their back. And it's like, how many fucking times are we going to see this person walking with their back? They also show Caro driving to talk to someone in her uh. car or rushing through some hallway looking for the person or walking down the street looking at addresses as the voiceover of the person talking is going on. I think what that tells us is, this person's talking to Carol after Carol went to this person to interview them and we're showing it in time here, like him, they're talking and here's Carol looking for, and one thing that bothers me about that is I think it makes the journalist documentarian too much of the story. Yes. Yes. Because exactly. I know the story is supposed to be about them investigating this, yeah. but I believe they were not really investigating it, which I'll get to that in a minute. But it's also makes it just, it's just too cliche. On one hand, yes, thank you for not doing like the multiple talking heads. Yes, I hate that. And all that stuff and and trying to have a structure to your story. But I think this was the wrong structure. Racial gender obtuseness. No. Lack of good visuals. No, the visuals were great. There was lots and lots of video from around the time the fire happened, although I don't think any of the actual 
some of the fire video like after the fire trucks and stuff got there was obviously real they had reenacted fire video which they didn't indicate was a reenactment which i guess is okay we're supposed to know it is and they had lots of video like of the police talking at the time of the funerals of the kids videos of the amusement park in the years before the fire the 40 which was interesting lots and lots of photos of the kids and their families as they talked to the people talking to the victims they had two fathers of the boys the mother of the little boys and wife of the guy who died and other various family members and then jason you know the kid who lived and show pictures of them with the kids and so that was good one weird thing that i put in videos is some of the interviews seem to be in motel rooms which i understand if you have to meet somebody they always had the person sitting on the bed and my thing is don't they have chairs in Australian motel rooms. Well, our last one didn't. Oh, they had a right, desk the chair. Hilton and Hilton Dedham. Yeah, it had a desk chair. It didn't have a comfy chair, but this was made in 2019. Yeah, it felt awkward to have yeah. somebody sitting on a hotel bed talking. And it seemed a deliberate choice because it seems like there were other people the person yeah. could sit. And like in one of them, you could see the person's wheelie luggage back in the corner, back behind. That's so weird. it was a. I think some of it could have been filmed during COVID. There were no indications of that. But since it came out in 2021 and some people in it were talking as though it were 2019 at some point. But I can't see what COVID would have to do with having the people sit on the bed. It was awkward and distracting, at least I thought it was. But I'm not taking anything away because I guess that counts as a visual. But I thought they they had so many good visuals and used them well. There is Oh, and there's one other thing that I'll put in visuals. They did have the engineer's drawing of the interior of the ghost train because it went through all these rooms. I would have liked more of that. They also had great interviews with people, most of whom were teenagers or in their early 20s at the time, who were also in cars, who got out. And I would like to see a diagram that shows where they were in relation to where the people were. Yes, that would be cool. And two of them, a couple were behind the father and kids who died and so i'm like okay then and ahead of the young teenage boys who died so how did these two people get out and the guy at one point says well i jumped out this way and she jumped that way but they don't say how they got out of the building yeah it's not like there are all these exits at one point another of the women says okay we're getting to the cage when we get to the cage maybe we could get out and then they get into get to the cage and it's all you're just trapped in it and so they went back in into the fire in their little car so i would have liked to see maybe more diagrams would have helped missing pieces minus one there are many many missing pieces none of the major well except one there's one major one but they all make following the story distracting for me now i know i'll i will give a disclaimer here that i am an american not an australian i'm an american damn it (laughs) <laughs> and you have to make things so we understand. At least I live where it's, things are free. Wait, <laughs> at least I know I'm free. <laughs> so maybe some of these are just missing pieces for me as an American, but I don't think so. Okay. I mean, there's some things I won't even talk about because there's so many. Many of the people they talk to were on the ride when the fire caught, which is good. And these people are all great. The interviews are really great. And you almost feel like you know these people, which is... I think in art, 
to it of i don't know if it's interviewing or if it's the the videographer who can make people be so intimate and and i'm not talking about even the people crying about their kids dying but just these people who were 19 or 20 who would have been the same age as me i was 18 in 1979 mm-hmm. who are on this ride and now 40 years later talking about it and they're just very natural and personable and and i think that there's an art to getting people to be like so that's great but i really would have liked to have understood more like they talked about what they saw and what happened but there were just holes in it like i talked about the couple who was in between two of the groups who died it's just not clear how they got out and then one of the ride attendants they talked to he and another guy who they talked to ran in and and the guy tony is like and i pulled out four five six seven people and then i saw the father with the little boys and i just couldn't get to him where are the people he pulled out because apparently none of them are interviewed in this and i would have liked to have heard more where were they in the thing how did they get out nobody else says hey this attendant saved all these lives or anything i mean he seemed to be telling the truth I just, I needed more of a picture of, you know, they talk extensively about what happened. I needed more of a picture. Like I said, they show a diagram of the ride and they do show at some point where the bodies were found. They don't show it long enough for me to process it, but I would have liked to see that in context of where everybody else, I heard or saw at one point that there were 11 cars because there were separate cars. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't really a train where all the cars were and who was in them. Yes. And that kind of thing. Speaking of that, there's not enough information early on about how the ride works. They're like, oh, the ghost train, the ghost train. And you can see it goes in, but they never clearly state. And maybe this is just me. I'm a linear thinker. I need details. I need to be able to process information. It takes a while to figure out, okay, they're separate cars. They're not connected like a train. Mm -hmm. Each one can fit two people, although the one with the two little boys, the father and the two little boys were together. You know, there were so many things in this that were drawn out and not necessary. Give me two sentences on how the fucking ride actually, because I'm distracted by that and it's hard to follow what's going on. Also, it seemed like the fire happened right when the park was closing for the night but no one says like the boys it was 10 o'clock they had one last ride and i'll get to that in a minute how many rides you get and they were going to go on the dodge cars but the dodge car attendant said no we're done for the night so they went to the ghost train and the attendants like somebody says at one time when we were just pushing them through because it was the end of the night or whatever but nobody says okay the park closes at 10 why are they pushing all these people through the yes And actually, whether the park was closing is actually kind of germane to the story. Is it that hard for someone to say the park closed at 10? Yeah. The park closed at 10.15 or the park closed at 10.30 or the park was closing. Then the other thing is, apparently the way it worked is when you paid to get in, you get a ticket. And I guess there were little sections on it and you get, they punch it when you got on a ride. So you got so many rides. I'm assuming because nobody said So the reason they were pushing people through the ghost train instead of saying, sorry, folks, we're done for the night, is that they paid and they have one more ride on their ticket. They got to use up the tickets. 
But it would have been nice to know because I think that played a part in what happened. If the park was closing for the night, nobody says. In fact, the mother of the two little boys and a husband who died, they got off the roller coaster and they had one ride to go on. The boys are like, oh, the ghost train. And she's like, well, I feel like getting an ice cream. So she stopped to get an ice cream and they were going to wait for her. And in fact, the father told one of the people who was talking, oh, we're waiting for someone so you guys can go ahead of us. But then when she got there with the ice cream, they were gone. They had gone in. And she's like, I'm haunted. Because first of all, she watched the thing burn down with her husband. Uh. But she's like, I've been just all these years. Why did he go in? Why didn't he wait for me? He normally would have waited for And my thought is, the attendant probably said, if hey, you we're ride closing it, you up. Right. Yeah. If you're going to go, you're going to go. A major missing piece is that it seems to me Martin Sharp, with all his investigation, probably figured out what happened, although they imply he didn't. A better structure for this, instead of doing the journalist investigating, would have been to somehow make him more part. Like, he was kind of thrown in there, and they, in the first episode, they talk a lot about him at the beginning, and it almost really slows it down, because it starts out, I think it was arson, oh, this thing burned down, oh, these people died, but you don't know what happened. And then they kind of drag it down, talking all about Martin Sharp and all this stuff. And then they start telling the story of what happened that night, and it gets very compelling. They talk about him a lot at the beginning and how this was his obsession. And then when Caro and Patrick start looking at the stuff, it's like, oh, here's all Martin's audio tapes. Here's all his statements and blah, blah, blah. But they don't really ever say what conclusions he came to, what he did about all this. And they use his stuff seemingly in their investigation. And I use air quotes around investigation, but he could have been more of a framework instead of just kind of thrown in there. He kind of fades away through a lot of it and then kind of comes back. He's dead, but the references to him and his stuff. Another big missing piece is there should have been more clarity on how the property works. So this property, which they kind of explained in the third episode, not enough for me, and I even talked to our sister Liz about it, who explained it a little better, but, and I was a reporter covering property things and stuff for years, but apparently it's state-owned land that is leased to somebody. So it was leased to the guy who ran the amusement park, Luna Park. What happened after the fire is a major part of of what's found out but they don't really say what happened to it after the fire at least not clearly enough for me to understand how anybody benefited and maybe i need to be hit over the head with it and it looking at that the park is operating today and it would have been nice to have a little more information okay it's there today it's got a different face not as creepy Hmm. as the one in the 70s and a little more you know slick and glitzy looking But they never say, yeah, now the park is blah, blah, blah. Now, unless I missed it somehow, because when I rewatched it, I didn't have time to get to the third episode, but I was paying attention and I needed more, especially because it's important to the conclusion they come to. What happened to that land and what was done with it? I mean, that would have been an important part of the story that I don't want to spoil. Uh, That to me is a big hole. Anachronisms and accuracies, no, no points off. Nothing. Even though they have a 70s element. The um, reenactments, the people look 70s-ish. And storytelling, minus one. I struggled with taking off a full point 
because I think some of the narrative arc is well done and the survivors of the fire are really great interviews, like I said before. I think it takes a talent to get that good. And a lot of these people are people you feel like you know, even though they're Australian and are all the way around the world from us and their summers are winter. They Mm -hmm. just seem like people, you know, I know I complain too much about talking heads, but in this case it works because every single talking head is someone who was somehow involved, a family member of somebody who died or was at the fire or was a cop who interviewed people at the time or otherwise involved. And so when they have like five or six people being shown the same piece of paper or responding to the same thing, it works because they have some stake in it. On the other hand, the structure, first of all, in the first episode, they go through some boring detail stuff that I already talked about that could have waited until later when viewers are like, wait, I want to know more about the fire, how it happened. I'm thinking about the fire that you just showed us. I So I don't care about this boring shit. And that could have gone. It's like putting too much exposition at the beginning of a mystery novel. The structure of the journalists investigating, I feel is a totally, or maybe not totally, but at least partially false structure. In this documentary particularly, there's one major thing that gives me a big, big issue with the journalistic investigation structure. And the third episode, Jason, the guy who worked with the filmmakers, who's a filmmaker himself, who was the little boy who was pulled out of the car, reveals a huge piece of information and knowledge that he had that somebody told him that basically makes all the digging and investigating pointless, or a lot of Mm. it. That points right to the answer they're looking for. It's not clear when he found this out, but the implication is it wasn't just yesterday that he knew this. At the beginning, he and Carol, like in the first episode, are talking at the very beginning of the first episode, and they're like, there's something somebody missed, and maybe we can find it and solve this. But then... In the third episode, Jason reveals this key piece of evidence that would have made all the all the posturing with the board and the, mm-hmm. oh, and now we found this out, now we found this out. On one hand, it's an interesting piece-by-piece story about how you piece together what the answer is. But the structure of the journalists investigating, at least to me, with this reveal by Jason made it a big phony thing because either he knew it and inexplicably withheld it from the filmmakers as they struggled to find out stuff or he told them at the beginning which i think would be the lot when they first started doing this hey well here's what I, i was told about blah 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 that means all their investigation or a lot of it is for show and they knew all along about this key piece of information that would point to the answer You know, there was nothing wrong with them knowing about the key piece of information. And I still think the steps they took showing us this stuff is valuable. I just think to find a non-phony structure to put it in. Because as a viewer, my response was, what the fuck, Jason? What the fuck, Caro? It's just like those shows, the the home improvement shows where, oh, suddenly there's this problem. Right. Oh, no. The whole thing. As if you didn't know about that. Yeah. Right. But with this, I feel it's duplicitous because it shows kind of the fakery of their structure. Yeah. I just felt duped as a viewer that, Mm -hmm. okay, don't show me this lengthy, lengthy investigation with the phone calls and the driving and the meeting and hotel rooms and all this. And, oh, could this mean this? 
oh, could this mean that? When you fucking already know. I know. And I'm not saying, again, that you can't show the steps or the, and that you don't have to tell us this piece of information at the beginning. Yeah. Don't pretend you don't fucking know it. And, know. and it all had already, the investigation part had already felt false to me. And maybe it's just because I have no patience. I want to see, I want to hear more. I yeah. want to know more about the fire and these people yes. involved and the crooked cops and all this shit. I almost felt they could have done a lot more like about the crooked cops. Uh, that's a little bit of a spoiler, but it doesn't really tell you what happened. In some ways, the narrative arc was really good. But if they hadn't had all this stupid bullshit with the board, with the pictures and the, oh, Caro, I just found out, blah, blah, blah. Oh, <laughs> did you? Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> they could have expanded. They could have shown us graphics of where all the people and the thing were. I know. Or spent two sentences telling us how the fucking ride worked. Anyway, and maybe people won't feel the way I did. I, you know, I know I get worked up about things people don't give a shit about, but this is my review, so I'm just telling yes, it like it is. You, yes, you have a right to. Thank you. Freshness. Yes, it's fresh. I'd never heard about this. No. Um, no before, and it's funny because I had, I can't remember what I had just watched. Oh, a very unsatisfying documentary about an avalanche in colorado that killed mm. a bunch of people in a ski area that could have been so much better and i won't even get into it but i'm like i'm i'm in the mood for a d another disaster thing mm. and i just turned to netflix and this had just and this was the first thing that came out wow. i'm like wow you know my tv's listening to me again mm -hmm. it's another one of those freaky things and it's a good story with a lot of good elements there's a lot to it parts of the way they tell it are also fresh and i guess i give them points for trying to have a structure that isn't just a straight telling but again the journalist investigating thing is not fresh and every documentary i watch that does it it drags it down. But I hate like, it when they're in the car, they're on their speaker. Right, they're, they're on their on phone, the phone, like oh. the Innocent Man. The first four episodes or whatever of that documentary series, The Innocent Man. Yes. Boom, 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 fantastic. And then all of a sudden, it's like a whole different documentary where they bring in the reporter and she's in the car yes. on the phone. Whenever on a documentary, somebody is in a car on a phone, Ugh. I'm like, this is going to be the most boring two minutes so of my stupid. day. Yeah, I just hate it. The Martin Sharp angle could have been fresh. I felt it wasn't used well. I'm not taking points off for freshness. And the Martin Sharp thing doesn't really... F I feel like it, they had that, but they didn't use it to frame the story well enough. And I feel bad for poor Martin. We never did find out... I mean, did he just have all this, this whole know. room full of information and never come to any conclusions? Repetition, I'm not going to take points off, but they really hit you over the head from the beginning with people thinking it's arson and saying over and over again, I think it was arson, I think it was arson. My kids were murdered, those people were murdered, it's arson, arson, arson. And first of all, it's like, okay, we get it. And second of all, maybe this is just the writer and me or the reader. If you're looking to find out what started this fire that killed these people... And you may be narrowing into a conclusion after three episodes that it's arson. Don't, from the very beginning of episode one, have people constantly saying arson, because then what you may find out is going to have a lot less impact. Mm -hmm. Beating the drum 
same thing, no points off, but it's the same as the repetition. They stress too much. And that's the weird thing, too. So there's a lot of people who thought it was arson. But some of the parents, the conclusion at the very beginning, right after the fire, the cops are like, oh, it was an electrical fire. Caro says that to some of the parents of the kids who died. And they're like, well, they thought it was an electrical fire, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, don't they remember? I mean, what did they (laughs) think it was? I don't. When they say to some of the people involved, you know, some people think it's arson. They're like, really? Oh, and it seems to me that this this was a major, major fire in Sydney. There must have been more people talking about maybe it was arson and that people who didn't think about it or hadn't thought about it still would have heard that people thought it was arson. And yeah. It was sketchy. And so beating the drum, I'm not taking points off. So that's seven points total. It is very good for all my bitching and ranting. I watched it almost twice. I didn't watch the third episode again because hmm. I didn't have time because I had to go to bed last night so I could get up early today to go eat turkey and stuffing and stuff. Yeah. The episodes are all about an hour and a half long. I highly recommend it. At the beginning, I almost wasn't sure if I was going to keep watching. I think I even texted you, boy, I started watching this thing. But it got good fast. When people are talking about the fire and the people who are involved there and stuff, it's very, very good. And it's definitely better than it's not. And as I said, I know there are... I'm pickier about things and have peeves and criticisms and complaints that other people just think are nonsensical so my feeling is that most people won't have the issues maybe people won't even care about jason's big reveal it doesn't matter it's your review thank you why do you even care what i know i don't care as you know what other people think but what i'm saying is for people who maybe just feel bombarded by my negativity for the past uh, 20 minutes or however long i've been talking to say oh that's oh that sounds awful i'm not going to watch it uh, i'm just okay, qualifying okay. my criticisms okay, by I saying if you if you were just hearing my voice going bleh, 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 <laughs> specifically listening to what i'm saying the overall thing is it's worth watching and all my blah 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 may not bother you that much they were are listening because they're listening to the podcast. So of course they're listening to what you're saying. I'm just saying. No, no, those are two different things. Sometimes when I'm driving and like I start thinking about like my book or something and I'm kind of listening to a podcast, I realize that I'm I'm not paying enough attention to know what the fuck they're talking about and I have to keep rewinding and listening uh-huh. to it over and over. But anyway, it's late and we've eaten a lot of turkey, so we should probably Yes, and I have to get up at six fifteen to go to work. So Oh, ooh, why well, you have to work tomorrow? bummer um yeah i do i have a thing called a fucking job okay <laughs> well, a lot of people have the day after thanksgiving off well i don't oh i'm working tomorrow too biatch yeah but you work for yourself so if you want to sleep late no you i have to work at the bookstore and it's uh, fucking black yeah, not Friday. At six. no i don't have to work at six but i get up that early so i can I mean, write my seven. book and if you think writing a book is easy and it's just it is i just wrote one and i've got an agent simon and schuster is bidding it's having a, a domestic with Saint thriller it. it's yeah, kind like, of like gone girl meets, it's yeah thanks. thanks it's like gone girl meets um uh i'm trying to think of another book that was... well anyway i'm doing our next one and i have one in mind Yay. one in mind that's not only a good story but actually involves somebody a creepy guy that um i once worked with 
Anyway, yeah, I know. What a, what a rogue scale. <laughs> it's funny, I know. Creeps. Man, nobody will, you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> you put that in a book, nobody will believe it. But I guess okay. so we should, we should yes, go. Yes, we should go. And um, we just want our Patreon donors to know, thank you, as always, in the weeks to come, you'll be getting your annual Christmas yes. gifts of goodies from us. Yes, very special things for yes, special thank people. Thank you, everybody. Yes, thank you for listening. Okay. Good night. night. Mm. A little turkey coming up there. Prosecuting was J.A. Giles. Fuck.